Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. I encourage everyone to at least try their hand in agriculture. I don't care what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's really important, even if you're not going to grow it and you're a brewer, you're a beer lover, you're a home brewer, whatever, understand where your ingredients come from. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. This week, we're narrowing our focus to a specific overlap of agriculture and beer, small-scale hop farming in non-traditional areas. Who is starting farms? Where are they located? And what are the historical and present challenges these farmers face in North America, where the scale-up-to-succeed mentality and monocropping are most prevalent? How is the what's-new consumer fixation challenging for small-scale, non-traditional growers? And how do branding and marketing play into the hands of large-scale growers? On the other side, where can small-scale farmers exceed industry expectations? Here to discuss the ins and outs of small-scale hop farming in non-traditional areas is James Altweiss, a trained molecular biologist, horticulturalist, and sensory scientist holding advanced degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Toledo. In addition to his podcast, Hopnology, and consulting work for hop farmers, James teaches at the Siebel Institute in Chicago. Listeners may remember him from our sensory discussion in episode 17. James also weighs in on the impact climate change has had on hop growing, terroir, and use of hydro and aquaponics. Let's dive and get heavy. James, welcome back to Heavy Hops. We appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining us again. Cheers. Love to be on your guys' show. Appreciate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm going to bury the lead here for a second. Uh, and I want to know uh, a little bit about uh, what you've been, you want to tell folks what you've been up to. You've got like a new sort of feed in the Hopnology podcast. Oh, sure. Yeah. So Hopnology, that's who we are now. Uh, been doing Hopnology for a couple of years now. Prior to that, uh, we were Gorse Valley Hops before we sold that entity. So we were in that uh, non-traditional hop production space as well as consulting, educating, greenhouse production of hop plant, anything around hops, it was us. Um, but uh, we just recently, I think we're, we're closing in on trying to think how long it's been. Two and a half years of doing podcasts on hopnology, I think. So a few, you know, dozens and dozens of well over a hundred episodes there. Um, we drop one a week, but then we also just, uh, realize a, uh, a new little bit of add on for, for some of our listeners and our, our patrons from Patreon that are listening in. Cause they're all about, you know, they want to know more about homebrewing. They want to know more about beer ingredients and sort of the other part of my life, right? Teaching at Siebel and teaching beer, uh, brewing chemistry and aroma science really, is adjacent to you know the hop production stuff and market stuff we talk about but we wanted to offer a little something extra so we started this thing called backyard brew farm which is all around for home brewers frankly that want to talk about 
the tech of home brewing and home brewing ingredients and things that they can they can do themselves right make it immediately impactful from their backyard into their brew kettle because that's where the innovation starts right it starts in the garages and the basements and the kitchens of the homebrew space so we figured that you know if we can get started there we can head off the bad habits and so we can avoid abominations like hazy ipas <laughs> oh wait a minute was that was i editorializing there a little bit too much <laughs> <laughs> no that was that was fantastic and i've seen uh, the ones that i've listened to have been uh, about adjunct use uh yep. none of which have ended with toast which is really cool uh, uh no toast <laughs> no toast no uh no count chocula uh no nothing um, i think we just dropped one about uh, spruce tips um which is one of my favorite uh botanicals uh we've got another one coming up that greg likes to talk about my partner all the time called zest all about <laughs> using citrus zest and what the chemistry is around that and how to optimize it and whatnot in the brewing system so having a ton of fun with that kind of stuff we'll also get to to fermentable uh multiple alternative grains and how to use those actually how to malt them at home how to do it yourself what the chemistry is going on there and then how to use them in the beer what to expect from a sensory standpoint Awesome stuff. Definitely, uh, a, you know, good material for people that are interested in home brewing. And I, th- I know there's a lot of different uh, home brewing uh, podcasts out there, but I think these two together are a really nice uh, combination with the normal feed and um, with the with the additional components. So that's exciting. Yep, we love it. That's just brand new. So we'll uh, hope and get some traction on it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's ji- let's dive into. Uh, uh, you know, non-traditional hop growing areas and regions and uh, kind of get a, a paint a little bit of a picture of what that looks like, where it is, where it occurs and who's involved and how it gets done. So sure. I think, um, you know, speaking from my own experience in uh, in reading about beer and learning about beer, we learn about the hop industries via learning about where the powerhouse brewing regions are. And so uh, I wanted to know, have these regions always been sort of the like historically monolithic growing regions Mm. and how wide are hops grown like geographically? Sure. So if you look at, let's look at um, European production and that's, you know, people say, well, you know, hops are European and that's really the birthplace of hops. Well, no, hops are really more from the mid to far east, right? And as as we understand, they made their way into sort of the European continent, continental Europe anyway, uh, during the, the time of and brought that wave via Alexander the Great uh, from his travels eastwards. And they naturalized, right? And so then they just boom well, hops are native here. Well, what's native mean, right? Yeah, they're native now, right? They, they grow wild, they love it, and they're kept in check by pests and disease. So yeah, I guess they're native. Um, so they're, yeah, you know, they're, they're used, or they were focused heavily in the industry there, but not really until middle 1200s, right? Sister Hildegard von Bingen, Sister Hildy to her friends. She uh, she was the one who really figured out that, you know, hops prevented putrefaction of ale. Well, it was ale at the time, right? Sweet, warty beverage. So that's really where it got started. And But obviously the whole outlawing and King James and all that kind of stuff. But um, once it came back into fashion, right, in the 1500s, and, you know, it was game on that uh, 
let's start growing these things because holy crap, people want them and they're worth money, right? So we're always looking for, for different crops to grow. But if you look at the traditional European model of hop production, very, very small farms, you know, they're in North American speak, they're, you know, 20 to 30 acres uh, or even as small as five acres. They're tiny compared to what we know in the Pacific Northwest, which are hundreds and hundreds, thousands of acres, very typical American monoculture kind of production. So the, the industry around hop production in Europe, very, very different than that exists in North America, very different. The, the mentality towards it the, uh, by the farmers and the, the brokers, the, uh, the usage of it, how, how farmers see it, right? It's like, yeah, I've got hops in the ground, but it's nothing like to be in the Czech Republic and find, you know, acre upon acre of hop trellis still standing, but nothing but canola growing because, you know, they're getting 40 cents a pound for their size hops might as well grow canola for biodiesel because it's, you know, more, more economically viable. So there really isn't that, that kind of romance attached to it. It is an agricultural crop. That's it. Um, and rarely does it exist as its own production, right? They, it was, it was part of another, you know, cropping system or multiple cropping systems. Just, that's just smart farming, right? Diversification. And compare that to North America, right, where we are looking for economies of scale and how can you factory farm this stuff in order to lower your costs, increase your profit or margin anyway, and uh, satiate the, at least the brewers that were looking for this product, you know, in the 50s, in the 60s, Anheuser-Busch mostly, uh, and how can we do it at scale and still, you know, make some money. And so that's kind of drove that large scale large volume monocropping. So in in today's world, though, of the non-traditional farmer, uh, non-traditional hop grower, it certainly harkens more to the traditional European model of scale and as small as an acre. Uh, some folks are growing on a half an acre, um, hop gardens, I suppose you would call it. Uh, but the the production mentality really needs to, to be focused on that old world European model of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it is instead of looking, using a model of like the, the Pacific Northwest and saying, that's what I have to be, to be successful is have 500 acres. No, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, Alexia, in terms of your, you know, how, how do you want me to maybe relate that to the brewing scene? You, you had mentioned the, the, the powerhouse brewers in Europe and, and sort of what their, influence was on this? Yeah, I think in some way, and, and I think that perhaps we learn about it that way because it's an easy narrative arc to present to, to like beginner readers is that, sure. oh, the hops come from the same area where the beer is made, um, which I mean is true in the pre like refrigeration cart uh, distribution, right? right so right. Um, I, I suppose uh, maybe the best way to do this is to uh, sort of like illustrate it with an example. So in Wisconsin, where you're from, uh, there was a thriving uh, hop growing uh, culture in the 1800s, if I recall correctly. Correct. And yeah. And uh, like, how did that kind of come about? Money. It was it was it was the thing. Right. And the, the hop growing boom really only lasted a decade. 
and then the peak was only like four or five years because what was happening is all of the crop for the current brewers what you know and these were much smaller than our you know multinational conglomerates now uh their hops were coming from the east coast they were coming from new york uh connecticut uh, a little bit out of pennsylvania and when they got hit with what they were calling the hop louse which is an aphid and the subsequent sooty mold that follows from the mold growing off the the honeydew that comes out of the their back ends uh that was wrecking the crop as well as downy mildew and so hey everything's better out west so pull up move out west and so wisconsin was really kind of coming into its own at that time and you had a lot of immigrants coming in from poland from uh and from germany that i mean if you come into wisconsin south central wisconsin you're like this could literally be in Rhineland Falls area. I mean, it's like, that's <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly what it looks like. And hey, yeah, I think that the hops have will grow well here. And they did, right? They grew great because they were also native, uh, naturalized in this region. So you kind of had a perfect storm. You had a crop crashes and production crashes in the East Coast, nobody else to produce this stuff and brewers paying through the through the nose in order to get crop. And you could do it quickly in Wisconsin, and bankers were were writing blank checks. You know, mm. how much money do you need? Just get started, do it. And people were making hand over fist money to the point where farmers were sending their children to Europe to the royal courts to spend the summer. Right? Stupid money. I mean, stupid money. And even just north of where I live in Sauk County, uh, in Sauk City, Wisconsin, there are still mansions built on the river that belonged to hop growers, hop farmers that of that era. I mean, they're still standing. Um, it's ridiculous to think that that it was worth that much. But then shortly, not too long after that, downy mildew moved in, the 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 powdery mildew and the and the louse moved into Wisconsin. And guess what? Everything's better out west. So they picked up stakes and they moved out west and they moved out high and dry, right? So they moved out to Northern California and you know Yakima Valley and places like that and never left. Interesting. So, so uh, what I'm gathering in a certain sense is that the same issues followed the crop, uh, followed the crop west because perhaps the uh, manufacture, the practices, uh, the agricultural practices didn't develop, uh, even though there were because maybe people were bringing them from Europe and they were bringing the same knowledge set? Correct. So they were finding themselves trying to trying to grow a crop in a production system that was in an area that was not conducive to that system. And as a, in my background, my education is, is in, um, uh, I don't know, environmental biophysics, right? So what we do is we study the inputs and the outputs energy-wise in cropping systems. So we're looking at these old way, the, the way they were doing it back then, the old ways, and it just was not conducive to the environment. In Europe, it was fine because they didn't have those pressures. They didn't have those same disease and insects, but here, different, different story. They didn't know how to respond to it. They didn't have the tools to respond to it correctly uh, in order to, to control it. And, and control is a very loose word, uh, more like deal, live with it um, and have something at least harvestable. So the move out west of the crop from Wisconsin and even a little bit in Michigan and, and Indiana, very small compared to what was in Wisconsin. Um, the saw about the same time the advent of the use of sulfur in hop yards in order to control these mildews and and aphids out east. And so their production shot back up and production out west shot up because they didn't have the disease pressures. 
when you have an oversupply in a market, price goes in the toilet, right? So, you know, in, in 18, um, 1868 in Wisconsin at the peak, price per pound, 1868, price per pound of dried hops, $2.50 a pound. That's $18.68, right? <laughs> Correct. No wonder there's wow. mansions out uh-huh. there. I, they were, people were stealing hop plants from their neighbors' farms at night. And I'm serious. Yeah. There are reports, and I've got articles from newspapers back in the day talking about theft of, of hop plants because it was a big deal. Um, but, you know, then that price went to, I think, three or four cents a pound in the matter of about 18 months. Mm-hmm. Wow. Talk about losing your ass. Yeah. <laughs> so, so who were the uh, producers that were buying these expensive hops? Who was, who was the, who was the, where was the demand coming from? Well, right. Good old Wisconsin paps. Mm-hmm. Right. And old, old man paps and, and his whole crew, uh, any of those brewers at the time in the region, that's where they were getting them. It also, falls in line with the advent of of coast-to-coast rail traffic, mm-hmm. right? And being able to to move bales of hops quickly. Uh, but, you know, these are just compressed bales. They're not pelletized. They're not packaged. And so we know what happens to hops. If you leave them out in the air, they get all stinky and rancid. So uh, you can imagine the quality of the beer that was coming out of those hops um, <laughs> and, you know, what people are going to get. So really it was about proximity to the brewery and when you have you know Schlitz and Pabst and all those guys right here in Wisconsin pumping out you know hundreds of thousands of gallons of beer for the for the day they need their supplies close at hand so it made good sense to be here and when we look at growing hops um, as an agricultural uh, practice uh, what what kind of methods distinguish a non-traditional hop grower or hop growing area from a traditional one it's really more about the individual, the grower, and less about the area. And it all comes down to mechanization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a professional, traditional hop grower is certainly invested heavily in mechanization because hops are an extremely labor-intensive crop to grow. And I was thinking about this earlier, how to, how to put this into context. Uh, I figured this topic would come up. And, uh, and it's like, how can, I, how can I represent this? So you could say, the cost of production for a small scale, non-traditional hop grower, let's say on an acre, two acres, three acres, the cost of production, 90% of it is gonna be in labor, huge amount. Mm-hmm. So your opportunity to increase your margin is all in mechanization and labor reduction while keeping yield and quality still high. The issue there is the barrier to entry. This equipment is very expensive and it's not scaled for, for really small scale growers. So you find yourself in a catch 22, where am I gonna spend my money? Uh, and so the really what sort of the separates the, the men from the boys, so to speak, in the, in the hop growing world is mechanization and how much you've invested there. And for, you know, a decade or more during this sort of revitalized revitalization of, of the non-traditional industry, it was, you know, thumbs behind collars of, Hey, I just bought a, an $800,000 wolf harvester, you know, look at, look at my new toys. Right. Yeah. That's all great. And all till you start paying the bill. Uh, Mm -hmm. and realize that, oh, crap, I actually have to grow stuff to pay for this? I'm not such a rock star anymore. So it's all about scale. So a small-scale grower, non-traditional grower can still be very successful. It 
with the caveat that most of their, uh, let's call it revenue, is going to be consumed by the heavy manual nature of what they're doing and their yields are not likely going to be optimized. So they're not gonna be hitting the 1,500 to 2,000 pounds dry per acre that the Pacific Northwest is because that's really an optimized system. And that's where I see a lot of non-traditional growers fall down is because they're, they're basing all of their production spreadsheets off of those numbers when really they need to take that number and cut it and divide it by five. Mm-hmm. So instead of 2,000 pounds an acre, right, you're gonna be lucky if you get 500 Mm-hmm. Uh, with your manual processes. And that's just the nature of the beast. So making that next step, uh, you can be still be a non-traditional hop grower and be mechanized, but that's really where that difference difference falls. And non-traditional meaning I'm not growing in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. or I'm not growing in, in you know, the Czech Republic or, or someplace like that, or, or even in um, uh, some different places like New Zealand. Location is one thing, mechanization and is, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that's really what separates us. So we're saying, yeah, we're trying to make a go of this and it's usually not my full-time gig, uh, but I want to still be successful. How can I do that without taking out a three or four new mortgages? Yeah, it's interesting to think how heavy mechanization plays into the profitability and, and you know how successful you can be as a hop farmer when you consider just how widely available the crop is and how easy it is to grow in different regions. I would almost want to think like your regionality would play a larger impact in a sense on how much you can harvest. Um, so it is kind of interesting in that regard, how then does environment play into a factor of a variation in these hops year over year? Right. So location, uh, is, is everything for hop production when it comes to both yield and quality. Um, I'm gonna bring up a very controversial topic, terroir and hops. Um, I don't think it exists, but we'll leave that for another discussion. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, at least not in the way people want to think it exists. Let's put it that way. Because I think one of the other questions we were thinking about talking about was, you know, how does it vary year to year and what do those crop differences look like? And so we can touch on it there. But let's take Florida, for example. Uh, there are hops being grown in Florida right now that are being used f- in brewing. The challenge there is day length. So hops are a crop that are day length dependent in order to optimally flower. So you need to have the correct change between day and night time through the photo period shift, as we call it, in order to get the hormones to turn on correctly in a hop plant to get it to synchronize its flowering. If you don't have that, the hops will still flower, but we kind of call it panic flowering, where they're like, I don't know what's going on. I better reproduce. (laughs) (laughs) And so they'll flower, right? But they will flower at a third to you know a quarter of its p- genetic potential compared to if they were in a in a proper uh, or more appropriate I should say latitude for that day and nighttime differential that's a huge difference so you can have folks in these areas that are closer to the equator where the days and nights become more equal right to the point where the, the hot plant isn't getting a big enough signal they're doing things like day length extension in their hop yards with lights and trying to make it, uh, well, they're artificially extending the day length. 
and in order to get the hops to, to do their thing. <clears throat> and that has shown some impact, right? Some improvements in yield. That's great. Uh, that doesn't mean it's profitable. Mm-hmm. I can tell you it isn't. <laughs> can you do it? Yes. Should you do it? Mm. Grow strawberries. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that light isn't free. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. I don't care how efficient your LEDs are. It's one other cost in, in the field. And, you know, I, you have to question, is it really the right thing to be doing? I know hops are sexy, but is there a reason, you know, is it really the right place to be doing that? I know you, you want to be attached to it. And that's one of the reasons. I mean, when I started with hops in Wisconsin, I didn't say I'm growing hops and this is what's going to happen. I looked for a crop that had a relatively high value that already had a market. I didn't have to create a demand for it and something that fit my expertise. Well, hops, let's, let's do hops. And that's how we landed on it. We didn't say, you know, I wasn't finding myself living in, in Texas or Arizona saying that, wow, craft brewing is huge. I should grow hops. Cause you know, I know I could sell these things and then they don't grow for crap. Um, different dynamic there, but location is all about uh, impacting yield and to some extent quality. Uh, if you're overcast, if you have too much sun versus cloud days, or if you have too many cloud versus sun days, I should say like if it's too overcast, your alpha acids are going to suffer by like 30% reduction just because of incident solar radiation. Um, can't really control that. So if you're growing in a over, relatively overcast area, let's say you're coastal where you have a lot of um, marine layer fog, um, that's going to impact your alphas. And so you may have a, a cascade that's supposed to be at seven to nine percent alpha, but it's only coming out at four and a half. There's nothing you're going to do about that. That's part of your location. Sorry, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, and same thing if you have two temperatures that are way too high, and your day nighttime temperatures differential isn't big enough. Let's say you're still very very high uh, during the day is like stupid high, like 120 degrees, 110 degrees, and then your nighttime lows are 80. The hot plant is going to be grumpy as hell because it needs that diurnal temperature shift as well as the fact that it doesn't like to, uh, it kind of goes quasi dormant at temperatures over 90 degrees. So now what are you going to do? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And when we think about the brewers then who are getting these products where it's heavily dependent, as you were saying, based on the weather patterns, say they're used to a specific level of alpha acid in their hop. Now they have to adjust the recipe, especially Correct. if they're a bigger brewery. So these yep. impacts are lot they, they stem into the larger brewing industry as a whole. So absolutely. How, what do we do when when this happens to our hops that we're used to? <laughs> <laughs> well, those larger brewers, well, not even larger brewers, most brewers want consistency in their crop. And they want to know that their cascade is going to be within the 10 year USDA average. Right, that's what we we teach non-traditional growers. It's like if you can't hit these averages, stop, because that that variety is not going to work out for you. Mm-hmm. So, large-scale growers and and frankly, not necessarily the growers, but the brokers, the growers aren't selling direct to the to the brewers in mo- in most cases. Certainly for traditional growing, they're selling to brokers, and those brokers are batch blending in order to even out those that variability so that brewers are getting something that's much more consistent. Non-traditional growers on a smaller scale cannot compete with that. So they have to be able to deliver some other value add as well as you know have a, have a different conversation with their brewer customer to level set their expectation. 
because if if your brewer is expecting 7.5 cascade and you're bringing them 4.5 year over year and you're also charging them four times as much per pound in order to deliver you know a same a similar alpha why i mean local's great but i got a business to run Mm-hmm. And that's really the massive challenge that the non-traditional industry sees, growing an industry sees, is communicating that to the brewer and understanding just because you harvest it and it's green <laughs> and that's a hop and it goes in beer doesn't mean that you are meeting the expectations of your customer. Mm-hmm. And that's generally where growers, even if they are successful in actually growing a crop, find themselves stumbling is in that sales and, and business relationship building, setting those expectations. Mm. I think one more thing I want to touch on on this subject is we see a um, there's a growing trend towards people going towards farmers markets to get their produce right because mm-hmm. it's local. Do you think we'll see a similar trend with hops? Even though the it, it, you could say it's a comparable price shift from buying your vegetables in a grocery store from a farmers market. Do you think we'll see a similar trend with hops, uh, non traditional hops? Um, I doubt it. Okay. Uh, on, and certainly in the short to near term, only because the the dominant. The industry now is dominated by what's new, what's new, what's new, what's new. And what's new means patented so that small scale hop growers can't grow these varieties that everybody wants right now. Sabro and Equinox and Eucanot and all those things. They're all patented. So, and there's no licenses. And I could give these licenses out to small scale growers. Right? Why could the larger growers run the market? So non-traditional growers find themselves in in a space where the only thing they have available to them are open source varieties many of them what i call heritage varieties that are hard to come by now like saws saws is ridiculously hard to come by at least of any quality and when i started 15 years ago i'm like i'm not growing saws it's so low growth and low yielding and blah 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 it doesn't like tuesdays and all kinds of stuff right so it took me seven or eight years i'm like fine i'll try some saws it's my number one bestseller it just loved south central wisconsin and you know i've had dan carey at new glaris come out and you know he goes all over the world sourcing his hops and he's like these are the best saws i've ever had how many acres can you put in the ground (laughs) (laughs) Uh, how many do you want (laughs) all of them all the acres um so it was you know, a bit of a surprise there, but you know, that's, that's the big challenge with, with that industry. And that's why I don't think you're going to see a farmer's market type of scenario uh, because we have like online, you know, sources now, but it's all, it's turned into kind of a, a trade and swap of old hops and uh, patented stuff that people maybe bought too much of or whatnot. And things like, you know, Centennial and Cascade and Nugget and, you know, my favorite, which is Brewer's Gold, um, are, you know, over there in the corner. Nobody cares about them anymore because they're not sexy. Mm-hmm. That's the that's why I think it's you're not going to see that. Could a market be built around that? And I think yes, in some very specific locations, but it's all around image. It's around market and branding and things like that. And frankly, most farmers are not good at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to. Uh... I want to reel back into something that you touched on that I think is kind of an, an important part of how uh, like beer marketing works and how the hop industry kind of 
plays into it in a certain way, and that is patented hops and patented varieties. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on uh, how a hop variety can be patented and how that limits uh, a non-traditional grower? Sure. So plant patents is an entire world unto itself. And ultimately what it requires one to do is to file a patent, is to be able to show deliberate, traceable crossings, males and females, in order to produce a crop or a, a new entity, all right, uh, an offspring of with desirable traits. And if you consider one hop cone, one female strobile, as we call it, can produce 100 to 150 seeds. And each one of those seeds, half is male, half is female. You don't know which ones are which. And each one of those 150 seeds has a different genetic expression. They're all different. That's a single cone. Now multiply that times a thousand on a single plant. So how do you actually find these desirable attributes? How do you breed them? How do you cross them? It's a massive, massive effort. And just the kind of glib back of the envelope number is 10 years and a million bucks to get to a variety. And that variety doesn't necessarily mean, that doesn't mean all that money that you spent to get to that one variety is actually gonna do anything in the marketplace. It's a total gamble. So the, the companies that can spend that kind of resource to get there, to, to breed something, think about it like this, they're 10 years behind the trend, mm -hmm. just, just by nature of, of how it works, right? There's all sorts of genetic mapping being done, trying to figure out if there are any markers that would determine, you know, what would make a good cross. It's a, that's a big deal right now. Um, not a whole lot of luck yet, but maybe, uh, but that's how, that's how that process happens. Once you can prove that you've got this variety, that you've done all this work on, that you own the intellectual property of that breed, you take it to market, you have the rights to license that production to another farmer if they want to, right? Where you could, they pay you a royalty or they pay you outright for whatever, for a long period of time. And then you've got to pay to, to market it. Big bucks around marketing. I mean, 15 years ago, you would have never have seen a full page, glossy, full color ad in an industry magazine or our homebrewer magazine advertising a hop variety. What, what's that all about, right? Uh, that just didn't happen before because it was not something that brewers, you know, that, that growers were marketing direct to consumer for. And now you do, you see it all over the place where the amount of money that's spent in branding and marketing to not just brewers and homebrewers, but consumers in the bar, right? On the tap to know, oh yeah, I really love Citra. I, I really love this. I, oh, I'm gonna have that beer because it's got Citra in it. And you see it, the names of hops splay, you know, spewed all over cans and bottles and, and but you don't see anything about the yeast, right? Because the, the yeast name 0917 alpha, whatever, <laughs> it just doesn't roll off the tongue, I guess. But you know, there are, or, or the malts that are involved, but for some reason hops have become sexy. So the market's tuned in on that. The challenge that makes there for for non-traditional growers is how how do you how do you beat that, right? You are you going to start your own breeding effort? You could, but it's a total crapshoot, right? It's like akin to winning the lottery, and do you have ten years and a million dollars to put into it? If you don't, then you may do some crosses and may come up with something that's cool, right? But you can't patent it because you don't have all the data behind it. Mm -hmm. You can keep it as like a trademark as a trade secret if you wanted to control that whole thing but now you have to spend all the money behind it to market it and get it out in brewers hands and the amount of money it takes to do that is ridiculous 
And so that's, you know, non-traditional growers can't compete with that. Mm-hmm. How, how do you compete with that? So what we have to do is we have to rely on people like the USDA who are uh, at the ag research stations that are doing breeding to create these open source varieties, like in recent years, Cashmere and Triumph and um, uh, Triple Pearl, which is one of my favorites to come out of that program. Great varieties, uh, really unique character that are available for us to grow, but that's it compared to the dozens of hot, sexy stuff coming out of the PNW and out of New Zealand. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is interesting to see how hops are marketed in the names of beers and in those kind of kind of like the secondary or primary, like, uh, descriptions of those beers on the branding that, and you certainly don't see that with craft malt or with, uh, with yeast. No, and it's, it's a tragedy. And I know that, that the yeast producers are, are starting to name their yeasts sexy names because I think they're catching on. I mean, Nottingham's <laughs> sexy, isn't it? Uh, sure, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and, but to, to hardcore beer geeks, right, and, and brewers, there are malts out there that are known for, you know, you talk about, you know, Maris Otter and Golden Promise and things like that, that people know are like, oh, yeah, okay. That's that's the beer I want to hit. I love those I love those malts, but it's just not a thing, right? It's just somehow or another, hops take on this have got this sex appeal that that draw people to it. Um, that's really mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is interesting, and I think that um, perhaps when you're looking at this sort of uh, non traditional farmer and how they can compete with that is ultimately. Uh, you can you can compete with efficiency on your own plot and also with your service that you can offer your clients, right? Because Correct. you are uh, you have an opportunity to sell directly to your clients, and so by right. building good customer relationships, you can hopefully overcome some of those issues uh, that come from not being as mechanized or have the the type of technology that a larger producer has. Um, do you think is that a, a big part of uh, the non-traditional world in, in terms of like the work that you do in tra- in getting people off the ground? Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because that is the competition space right there. That's where non-traditional growers can actually uh, fairly easily exceed the expectations of the industry when you're competing against these larger companies with patented varieties is customer service, is quality and how you're, how you're growing and drying and processing your hops. Uh, you have a much larger leeway to pick the optimum harvest date. You have way more time to dry and use a, a no heat drying method to improve aromatics and the sensory profile of your hops, even if it is a traditional variety and they rub them they're like, oh my God, I've never smelled a Centennial like that before. Uh-huh, I know, it's because how I dried them compared to what you're getting other places. It's, it's simple things like customer service, like, Holy crap, the number of times the brewers, even, you know, two, three hours away from me would call me and say, I started a brew. I am totally out of nugget. I didn't realize it. Can you help a brother out? Yep. You jump in your car and you make a road trip and you drop off nugget and they're there. Boom. Right. You don't get that kind of service from hot brokers. You just aren't going to that, that the non-traditional grower can. It's all about relationship management, relationship building and being honest with each other. And the big challenge for growers is learning how to sell themselves. And, and, you know, the grow it and they will come days are far gone, long, long gone. And I would say it, 
easily just there at the at um just before we sold Gorse Valley, I was spending probably 70% of my time marketing and selling. And I had to hire other people to do the actual agronomy stuff, which hmm, I want to be on the tractor. <laughs> that's what I like to do, right? Yeah. Um, I, but I think that that's also part of the, what we talk about, what, what in the industry we talk about with the own premise uh, sort of breweries is that you're closer to the customer and you can, um, you can listen to them and choose, you know, choose what you do with those findings, but you're closer to them and you can build relationships directly with the people that are buying your product. And so what I'm gathering from you is that uh, because non-traditional growers are located in a lot of different regions, they are also closer to breweries, whereas the larger, more established producers are located in very specific areas and can't provide that same level of service. Yep, absolutely. And they're also providing uh, uh, access to an ingredient, let's say wet hops, that some a, grow, a brewer in Tennessee couldn't afford to have flown out from the Pacific Northwest. So they may have a grower nearby that doesn't need, need to dry their crop because everything they're growing can be sent to that brewer wet and they make a big hullabaloo out of it. And it, it, it's a community builder, right? Can you build a business? on that as a hop grower? No, you can't. Is it, it, but it is a great, you know, um, how do I want to put it? Keystone, right? Of what you're doing as a grower, as an example of providing some access to, you know, a, a commodity that they wouldn't otherwise have access to or very easily or cost-effective. You're building goodwill. You've got a foot in the door for other hop products, processed hop products. And it takes time to do that. It takes time to build those relationships. And you got to be able to weather the storm of the cash flow storm <laughs> in the meantime in order to, to, to get things on, on the level. So with all these kind of barriers affecting uh, non-traditional hop growers, who, who, is, who are these people who are shifting towards this profession? Who are they nutsos like me who are doing it? <laughs> yeah. Um, who are they? Who are they today? Mm-hmm. Today, they are usually uh, either a professional in the agricultural industry somewhere and maybe not necessarily a farmer, like a full-time farmer. They may be someone in in ag economics. They may be someone in crop protection. They may be somebody who's even an educator that's seeing an opportunity and that that has a pretty good understanding of the complexity of just agribusiness in general. Uh, You're seeing folks that have no agronomic experience whatsoever, but are, are very technically minded and systems minded people. You have, you see IT people getting into this. Um, you see engineering people getting into this because there are very tactical, tangible uh, issues to, to be solved, engineering issues to be solved. In, in all those cases uh, where they all stumble, all of them, every single time is in the marketing and sale aspect. And people like to look at, the people that are drawn to this industry are looking for a problem solving opportunity, right? They like to think, they see these complex systems in their mind. They like to put forth solutions, but then you get into these soft skills of selling and marketing and customer service that are like a black box. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of not their thing, right? And so they stumble. And if you don't have the right people on your team that can backfill that, 
it's always going to be an uphill battle. And that's one of our primary things we try to, to consult and teach via our podcast is how do you do that? You, you can't underestimate that attribute in order to build your business. Otherwise you're, yeah, you could grow the best crop you've got and you could have high yields, but nobody's going to buy it. What's the freaking point? Mm -hmm. So thinking about like your one acre, uh, one acre producer, right? Um, so is that where people begin is at that sort of like very small, uh, homestead scale? Usually, uh, if, if someone's looking to dip their toe in and say, what would it, what's it really going to take? What am I really getting into? You know, an acre or less, you know, the, the there were years there where, you know, I'm going to start hop growing. Oh, really? Okay. I want to, you want to be a hop grower? Yeah. I'm, I think I'm going to start small. I'm going to start with like 25 acres. That's small compared to you know, a thousand acres of wheat, I suppose, but for hops and not knowing what you're getting into, that's a death sentence. I mean, you would, you would never want to do that. So start small, smell, fail small, right? Um, and because it is very expensive to start, it's also very expensive to maintain and harvest and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so keep it small. There's nothing wrong with small. Do you find that it's uh, it's challenging to grow an operation? Uh, I mean, obviously, like picking up and moving somewhere is going to be very challenging based on the fact that it's agriculture and there's trellises and all these other yeah. components to that operation that are going to make that challenging. So you have to choose a good place to start. Correct. Um, uh, so is scale uh, one of the biggest uh, obstacles or is it something that uh, is maybe focused on kind of uh, in the with the wrong sort of energy? Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like that folks with the wrong sort of energy because w people people want to get started with in hops because hops are sexy and the things that make or break a non-traditional hop grower is their business plan and the data that they have behind it that are driving, you know, how much due diligence have they done? Um, and that's boring stuff. Nobody wants to hear us talk about that. <laughs> it's usually the, those are the podcasts that get the least number of listens, but are probably the most important <laughs> to talk about. It's like, you know, you got all your data down. I mean, because, you know, this is not, this is not, you know, smoke and mirrors. I mean, this, this is, these are things we can calculate. Um, so that's where most growers just say, hey, I want to grow hops. And they don't really go through and do all their homework and they put it in the ground. They figure they're going to figure it out on their own, you know, but by the time they get to year three, they're still scratching their heads about, well, why are my hops hardly yielding? And they've got three years worth of costs sunk into it. And now they've got to go. And now it's, for somehow, somehow or another, now it's real, right? Now they're going to really start figuring out what they're going to do. And now they get another three years behind them, probably infected plants because they weren't taking care of them, blah, blah, blah. So it's all about mindset. I don't care what your scale is. You could have a, a half or a quarter of an acre and be in it to win it. And you could have 10 acres and not give two craps about it and, and have all the equipment in the world. So it is about mindset, number one. I would say number two, then the scale issue becomes one of labor. And really at an acre, can you mechanize? Not really. I mean, not cost effectively. You probably can if you have other crops, but if you're a homesteader and this is the only thing you're doing, you know, can you really afford to sink another $200,000 in used equipment? 
Probably not. People get really jittery about that, right? So nor do they like the idea of borrowing money because they're doing this out of their own pocket. That's something Greg and I talk about all the time, which is you think you're you're mitigating risk by paying for this project out of pocket because, you know, out of sight, out of mind, once it's gone, it's gone, as opposed to, you know, borrowing money and presenting a business plan and investing the cash in the right place and using your money as a tool to get you to the next step. Um, again, mindset. And that's a difference that we see in people in scale when they're going from an acre to five to 20 to 40 acres is suddenly it becomes a business and not a hobby. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I like to say hobbies cost you money. Businesses make you money. Which one are you? It's, one is not right or wrong, but just be honest with yourself where you are. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we look at, we, we've been talking about how hops are sexy. And when we look at these uh, popular hops that are being grown in the Pacific Northwest, how, how much are these popular hops drawing people into this field as probably a lot are ending up as hobbyists, right? Absolutely. That's where it usually, that's one of the hooks that starts and they want to get started and they spend time dreaming about their trellis and how they're going to, you know, corner the hop industry and, and be rock stars at their corner brewery. Um, and then they want, and they're, they're, they're saying, okay, where, where do I get some mosaic rhizomes? Yeah, you don't, unless you're a hop ninja and you go and steal them. Uh, well, what do you mean? And so it's like they haven't done that due diligence to really understand what's even available to them. And then they figure out, oh, I can't grow those. Okay, what about citric? Oh, really, Sabro? Oh, and just keep going down the line, right? And they're like, well, what am I left with? Cascade. So then they're just, they lose interest, right? Poof, they're gone. And so those people don't usually last very long, but it is absolutely a trigger for them to, to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. And the people who make it past that, who decide on a non-sexier hop, is there a higher success rate, we could call it, for them as far as being able to maintain something and not be sinking money into it? Well, first off, this is farming. <laughs> <laughs> so that statement doesn't hold any water. It's, you know, that old saying, how do you make a million dollars farming? Start with $2 million. Um, that's, what, that's what happens. Uh, the, I'm going to sound like a broken record here because it's going to come back to the same answer, which is, you know, mindset. The, who are the non-traditional growers that are successful? They're the ones that have invested heavily and not necessarily cash, but time and effort and, and whatnot in their community and building relationships with their brewers. Uh, that's number one. Number two is they realize the value of their own money and their own time. There are so many of these growers that say, oh my God, I made, you know, $50,000 last year. Oh, really? How much did you pay yourself? N nothing, right? Yeah, or all their labor is their family, right? And it's like, that's, mm -hmm. that's okay to get started, but that's not a business, right? How, show me, say, show me your P&L sheet, like boring. Uh, but those, those non-traditional growers that make that leap over to the successful farming side are making it, due to their successful business practices because we can teach the tech that's that we can do and there's more about small-scale hop production and non-traditional areas that we know now over the last 15 years than when i started there was nothing there was zero right so we had to learn it all the hard way <laughs> <laughs> 
but now there's a lot of data so we don't have to what we call the days of sniffing the dirt are over right we don't have to guess we know we have a lot of a lot of you know tools at our disposal so the technical part of growing to be successful is a problem that's fairly i'm not going to say easily solvable but it can be solved for the business development side, the marketing, the sales, the soft skill stuff is a whole nother ball of wax. And that's where the successful growers are doing a really good job. Do you think that the there's tight knit communities around those uh, those small uh, homesteaders that are uh, that are growers? And do you think that those communities are sort of the key to success for those uh, producers is to be a part of that community and to build that in some way? I absolutely think so. And I think the future for small scale hop growers in non-traditional areas is honest to God formal cooperatives because that's the only way they're gonna survive. And I'm not talking about a, 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 a like a supplies cooperative. I'm talking about a sales and marketing co-op and things that are more akin to other specialty crops and take a cue from them on what's made, allowed their growers to grow and focus on that aspect and allow others to go out and sell and build a brand and a reputation. The issue there that we find is that takes a lot of coordination. And then people say, well, I don't have that money and that takes a lot of money, it take hundreds of thousands of dollars. It absolutely can, but there are government grants available for that. Lot, th hundreds of thousands of dollars that go unclaimed every year to do exactly this, but people don't do it. And I'm not exactly sure why, maybe it's an unknown thing. It's just, you know, you get a bunch of people together, I'm gonna to do my own thing. But for small scale growers, you need each other. You know, and that's something that we try to do at Hopnology is build that community. Um, and we have a group of, of, of folks that support us on Patreon at our highest level, we call them Hopnologists. And they are part of our Discord community and chat and whatnot, and they're, constantly trading information back and forth and they're all small scale they're spread all over the world and it's great to see that community and have them and it's just not you know hey james what do i do with this it's them talking back and forth about this is what i saw has anybody tried this chemical and what were your results when you put on this pre-emergent and or what are you seeing in your area for market i'm looking to get into processing and what's my best opportunity for a small scale pellet mill or something like that that's that's the play there. So absolutely, it's important for them to to work together, to stay in touch, and to and to ultimately, I think, band together uh, into one of these marketing and sales co-ops. That's mm -hmm. how you compete at a larger scale. That's interesting because uh, you you've mentioned sort of a broader community of people that are doing things at a similar scale. There's also the local community where you can um, confer about issues that are uh, yeah that pertain to all of you, which is equally as valuable. I was just uh, kind of curious because oftentimes there's interesting sort of innovation notes when you look at how other industries adapt to similar problems or uh, fulfilling similar needs. So is there another crop or another sort of uh, world in ag that has uh, adjusted to this uh, similar sort of building uh, a sales co-op model? Absolutely. And right here in Wisconsin, we don't have to look any further than cranberries. Um, cranberries are a very good uh, analogy to hop production because it's extremely labor intensive. It's extremely money intensive to get started. The crop has a 
relatively high value compared to others, but you're not marketing direct to consumer as a farmer for your cranberries, right? How, how are you getting them to, to larger users? And I'm not talking ocean spray because that co-op, don't even get me started. Um, <laughs> that's not, a, I don't even know how they're still a co-op, but how does your sales and marketing co-op get your product into the sweet and dried cranberry market? How do you get it? How do you get more sales of, of your commodity into uh, institutional industrial scale food systems, schools, hospitals, uh, things of that nature? How do you get them, your product to use more in shelf stabilized, you know, pre-mixed food products? That kind of sales cooperative is what we're looking for. And in the hop industry, they need the same thing for a small scale growers. Now granted, they're gonna be focused almost solely on brewers, but that's what you do when you have to touch lots and lots of people and build a brand that you can't afford to do by yourself and allows you as the farmer to stay focused on the farm, build your own farm identity and you can still work locally, right? With your, with your, with your brewers in their state and your region and your town and maintain that identity, but also know you've got the power of this larger family behind you that's taking care of, or at least trying to take care of your larger volume, most of your volume of your sales. And is it gonna cost you? Absolutely, it's gonna cost you. But what is the cost of having product in your cooler that you can't sell? Way more than selling it at a price less than what you thought you might get for it, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. Are there examples of uh, such co-ops in, in the US? For hops? Nope, there are various state organizations that can call themselves cooperatives and they might be set up around um, like processing, like they'll say, we're going to start a co-op so we can buy one pellet mill or we're going to, we're going to dry for everybody, which doesn't work by the way. It's been tried several times. It doesn't work. Pelletizing. Yeah, that, you can have a processing co-op and even a processing and sales cooperative in places in Wisconsin had one of those, which they're dissolving now because it was never really run appropriately. It's not something you do on the side. If you're going to have a co-op that like that, that's going to work for you, you have to pay people to run it. You can't just kind of do it part-time. It takes money to do that. And it's not just about buying a pellet mill and getting that whole thing started. Who's your executive director? What are you running? How many grants have you applied for? What's your cash flow? What's your marketing plan? All of that. And it's all done kind of haphazardly. And it's just not done very, not, it's not very focused at all. So unfortunately it has been tried sort of, and every time it fails because it's just not, it doesn't have the, the appropriate attention and weight applied to it that it needs to to work. I wanna uh, shift and ask about hydroponic growing. Don't do it. All right, next. <laughs> so it's yeah, hair one hops now, right? <laughs> sure, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's do it. So uh, terroir and hops, uh, why is this a, a tricky topic to discuss? <laughs> um, so if you go back to terroir, so what do you mean, right? So this, this classic idea, I mean, yeah, you can look it up on Wikipedia or whatever, right? And see what the definition is. But what the expectation is, is that the cascade grown in Oregon and the cascade grown in Michigan are fundamentally different and they will be different year over year. Right. Or that the, their difference will maintain the same. So they'll take on their own identity of that place. And to date, the data do not support that. What we have seen is single year comparisons of crops grown in different places. 
Oregon versus Michigan versus upstate New York, let's say of the same variety, but that's just in one growing season, nor did it take into account the growing practices, specifically the drying practices. So running one of those tests and then doing a sensory analysis and saying, oh, hey, yeah, wow, these hops grown in Michigan are different than the ones grown in New York. I call bullshit on that because they may have been for that given instance, but you know, one data point does not a data set make, right? Show me year over year varietal stabilized differences. And what we know from, from the environment, just like I talked about, if you have more sunny days or cloudy days versus sunny days this season, your alpha is going to be suppressed. Just one year, that's how widely swinging that can be. And next year it could be right back to normal. So your alphas for your cascade aren't artificially suppressed or artificially inflated. They're all over the board. I can't call that terroir because you're going to have the same problem in other places. Although let's say if you're growing in the desert um, Pacific Northwest, like in Yakima Valley, where their weather is fairly uniform, those variations are going to be less year over year. So it might be presented as this is what our terroir is, but it's really not. That's not really from a physiological standpoint, what terroir means. Mm -hmm. um, we're thinking people want to think grapes, right? right? They want to think that these, this variety of grape grown in this region because of its soil is year over year going to produce this character that is highly sought after. And yeah, the sugar content may fluctuate a little bit here or there, given given whatever the, the season happens to be. But this grape takes on this character grown on this place under these soil conditions and hops just don't do that. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it's baloney. I'm sorry to burst everybody's bubble because <laughs> it's sexy to think about, but I, I am and I am perfectly happy to reverse my my position on that if I could see the data, but the data just do not exist. Mm -hmm. And physiologically, I don't think we will see that mm. uniformly. Some varieties, though, some varieties, Chinook being one of them, does tend to show stabilized aroma character differences depending on where it's grown. So there is, there is potential there. But to be able to say across the board that, you know, hey, I grow hops in North Carolina and my terroir is great. No, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But Alexi, what about hydroponic hops and terroir? Were, were you trying to, do you want me to talk about both those? or is No, I, I, I was just thinking about uh, hydroponic growth in general in agriculture because it is something uh, I was, okay, so I was at a market, or not like a, a farm that is also a market a couple of weeks ago with my, uh, with my folks in Southwest Michigan. And they had a whole like uh, hydroponic uh, endeavor there for like, uh, lettuce and tomatoes and stuff that we, that we eat in salad mostly. And so I, you know, uh, I sort of just thought, you know, when we're looking at hops and we're looking at, uh, you know, the various roles that environment can play and, um, you know, what if we removed soil altogether and just grew it on water and controlled it, uh, like we want to control our marijuana when we grow it. Mm -hmm. It absolutely can be done, has been done. And, and I've consulted on a few hydroponic uh, projects, uh, startups and, you know, kind of the due diligence phase and people already growing. Most of them have failed because the, the energy input is not sustainable compared to what the value of the crop is that you get out of it, like marijuana. That's just not there. Um, and the 
the hydro without getting too scary deep into the physiology of hops, the amount of root mass that a hop plant has also controls a lot of its physiology and the development of the woody crown develop is partly responsible for its physiology and a quiescent period. I'm not going to call it dormancy because we know now that hops don't necessarily need a cold dormancy period. They need some sort of dormancy. It could be light. It could be um, lower temperature. It could be other things. But um, those are all very difficult to control in a hydroponic environment. And when a plant doesn't have to search for water with its roots, it doesn't need to grow a large root system. And in that case, now you're monkeying around with plant growth regulators inside the plant and weird things are going to happen. Um, so hops are a complex enough crop physiologically to grow in the field under mother nature to put it in a greenhouse in a controlled environment and anything other than a research environment is just not cost effective. Um, can you do it? You absolutely, you can do it. Is it sustainable? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, tying in that along with this, we, we recognize is not necessarily a terroir and hops. How then is climate change? You guys can change? believe whatever you want. Well, I mean, I, I am in your camp. I, I just think, yeah, I see hops as an adjunct to beer, right? right. Because they're right. they're a bittering agent. Whereas if you think right. of grapes, they're, they are the wine. That's it. So, That's exactly right. Right. Um, but that point aside, how is climate change then going to affect our ability to grow hops in certain regions? Is Are we going to see... Um, a hindrance in growth in certain regions with climate change because we've we've recognized there's a certain dormant period. Water levels are going to be something that we'll be talking about, and even soil profiles will be changing as the world progresses through. Correct. What is going to happen? So how is this going to affect our hop growing? It, it already is dramatically. Ask any hop grower in Europe, any, because they don't grow under irrigation, or very few of them do despite their various countries' best attempts at billions of euros to put in irrigation systems, man, why would I need that? We've never needed it before. Well, because drought, like 15 years worth of drought. <laughs> and suddenly you have a hop plant, let's take Saws, um, or even Holotower, traditional Holotower, uh, loved, past tense, loved its Bavarian uh, sort of naturalized climate, very gentle. Sometimes they get some spikes into, you know, the, the high 80 Fahrenheit, right? But other than that, it was very, very gentle, very continental, right? Not anymore, right? Scorchers on average, you know, of 90 degrees plus and lack of drought or lack of water causing drought has created a massive loss in yield, 50%, more in some cases, with no end in sight. And those plants are not going to recover. So Germany's responded by breeding new varieties, uh, Super Holotower and some of these other other ones that are coming out with, uh, in order to help combat that. But it's already changing the way they do things. Same thing with saws. You know, there's so many growers in the Czech Republic that have ripped out their corn or their uh, saws fields to put in uh, uh, canola for biodiesel because it's more reliable and it needs almost no water and why why worry why have my entire crop be dependent on whether i get an inch of rain a week when i can put in something that really doesn't care about that and i have probably an equal or better market for it 
so don't grow hops. So they, they rip out their saws and guess what? This, the available saws quantity and quality goes whew. Mm-hmm. So it's already happening. On, on account of the pace that climate change occurs and the pace that the engineering of new varieties occurs in hops, do you think that at a certain point we risk losing classic styles? It's a possibility. Uh, it is absolutely a possibility, although I'm hopeful that what we've been able to demonstrate with our non-traditional hop growers around the world, an example that, yeah, we can still keep these things alive like saws in other regions, right? That are moving or have become more saws like <laughs> mm-hmm. if, if, you know, the whole Zeptesh region <laughs> there in, 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 um, in the Czech Republic is becoming more Yakima Valley like, right? So they may not be growing saws anymore, but they may start growing other other varieties that are more heat, uh, high heat tolerant and and less water tolerant. Where saws, you know, likes that sort of doesn't like wild swings. It doesn't like you know to be looked at directly, uh, and you get a you get a nice crop out of it. But it's not going to handle those those wild swinging environments anymore. Mm-hmm is kind of the future of not only hop agriculture, but agriculture as a whole, dependent on genetic crossbreeding, in your opinion, then? Genetics have some to do with it. Um, Agriculture as a whole, on one of our more recent podcasts, I think it's out this week, actually, uh, we talk about the future of farming just in general, and that we have to increase every acre of arable production that we have now the yield has to climb by 70% in 30 years or people will starve. 70, 70% without changing the level of inputs going into that crop. That's mind blowing. Yeah. What I, there's so, you mentioned those numbers and it has little. I can't even contextualize that. Like I don't even know what that means. So to say, okay, you're at, you're at 1500 pounds to the acre. You need to increase that by 70% without adding anything new. Mm-hmm. Well, I, to, I can't. The plant is not genetically capable of doing that. So yeah, we need more breeding. We need to be able to tweak those genes and there will be a limit to that through, through traditional breeding. Then what do you do? You get into genetically modified organisms in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. That is just the reality, whether it's hops or apples or corn or whatever. That's the what we're facing. We either reduce consumption or we increase production without dramatically increasing resource consumption. Mm-hmm. That balance that equation. <laughs> well, you got your flow in, your flow out, and it's just not equalizing out it's, in it's any way. <laughs> no. no, and you know, things people say, well, that's if you know we were doing organic production, that would solve itself. No, it wouldn't. Because actually the embodied energy in organic production is at best equal to conventional production or at worst 10 or 20 times more just in moving things around. And, you know, so if you have to use a ton of nitrogen fertilizer synthetic on your field, like an actual physical ton, to get the same level of nitrogen out of an organic source, you would have to use 20 or 30 tons. Well, that stuff just doesn't magically appear. It's got to be hauled around. It takes up space. It's heavy and blah, 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 blah. So there's no single magic bullet to the future of agriculture and hop growing at all. It's going to be 
nothing short of another green revolution in order to sustain our growing population within our lifetimes, mm -hmm. right? This is not like future world. This is, we're going to see it. And if we're not doing it now, it's going to hurt. Mm -hmm. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Captain, bring down away. <laughs> let's uh, let's end on a uh, a little bit of a happy note. A, a happy <laughs> note. <laughs> I see what you did there. Guys. No one's ever done that one before. No, yeah, so yeah. Uh, James, can you sort of regale us with a tale of uh, something sort of interesting that you've seen in your work in the in the hop world, you know, what's an interesting sort of adaptation that you've seen a farmer do? What, uh, you know, an innovation you may have witnessed firsthand, um, share a story with us. Innovation. I don't know if it's an innovation, but it was certainly creative thinking. You know, we talked about where people want to put their money as being a non-traditional hop grower. And, uh, there was one grower that was actually part of my group for a little while. We helped him get started. You know, he wasn't going to start with an acre. He wanted to start with 10. And he wasn't going to be talked out of it. I'm going to do it with you or I'm going to do it with somebody else. So I said, well, if he's under our eye, at least maybe hopefully have a crop. So he spent all the money on 10 acres. But he didn't think it was worth his time to buy a tractor. So he used his Camry. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow or another, he rigged up a hitch that he could attach trailer mounted agricultural equipment to, and he would literally drive his Camry through his field. <laughs> because why would he need a tractor when he's got a Camry? That's dual purpose, right? So is that a Toyota advertisement right there? <laughs> <laughs> and I still kick myself because Greg brings it up on our podcast all the time. I never got pictures of it. If I would have, they would have been gold right now. But I mean, there's thinking outside the box and then there's just being cheap. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> and that's, that was being cheap because there's only, you know, you can't do everything with the guy. Toyota's awesome, but they're not that awesome. Um, <laughs> the, I would say, you know, being innovative in the industry at a small scale is still possible. And I would, I would look to, you know, our past with this no heat drying methodology to say, here's something that we can do that will change the physical chemistry of a hop for the better on the aroma side, produce tangible results in the lab and on the lips that is actually best suited for non-traditional small sale growers because we have time, right? And that's what it takes to do that. And so that's an innovation where one could adopt and set themselves apart pretty dramatically in the industry. But it was so different, so weird and wacky and out there when we started it, nobody would believe us. It's only been in the past two years where finally our data was, uh, from from our trials was replicated at uh, University of Nebraska at Lincoln and a couple other places. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, they were right. <laughs> this is a real thing, right? So boom, there's innovation right there. That's, and we weren't huge. I mean, we started that project and that tech, we had an acre. So, I mean, the opportunities are there for people to be innovative uh, and, and in order to bridge those gaps. Um, some people have tried an innovation of saying, I'm going to stand out in the market by, I'm going to have 10 acres of you pick hops. I don't need no harvester. You, you let him come to you. Their own hops. <laughs> okay. <laughs> obviously never harvested hops before. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, that farm went up and went down in a hurry. Um, everyone likes to think they've got the magic bullet, 
right, when it comes to innovating in the hop industry, really the innovation comes on the business side and building those relationships and be innovative about how you position yourself and what story you want to tell of who you are and make that work for you. That's where the innovation comes from. The innovation is going to come from growers figuring out how to work together in an optimized system, like with the right type of marketing and sales co-op in order to be frankly taken seriously and have some legitimacy gained. It's not by using your Camry as a tractor. That's for sure. Uh, Cause damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So James, it's been a pleasure having, uh, having you on the show again, you've given, Thanks. you know, a really great sort of overview for, of non-traditional growing and non-traditional regions and non-traditional, uh, everything non-traditional <laughs> in some way and some great advice that, you know, any, business owner can take, you know, in the agricultural world. Um, do you kind of have any, uh, any parting words for our viewers and I'd listeners? No one's viewing us. Obviously. No one's <laughs> viewing us. Or not. Doing the same thing. Um, you know, if you are interested, I encourage everyone to at least try their hand in agriculture. I don't care what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's really important, even if you're not going to grow it and you're a brewer, you're a beer lover, you're a home brewer, whatever, understand where your ingredients come from. Do more, we call it, we, we say do more better, right? Do more better by your local farmers. Do more better by your local craftspeople that are producing these products that you consume. And I would say too, demand it of your brewers because unless the brewers are hearing it from their customers, they have no reason to change. And brewers are frankly our only source of sales, right? And if they're not incentivized to help out this industry, the industry won't make it. It's all on you guys. Yeah. Perfect. Well, uh, thanks, James. It was a pleasure. <laughs>